0: Welcome to the Keras Molecular Minute Podcast. I'm your host, Shadi Nabhan. I'm the chairman of the Precision Oncology Alliance, the largest collaborative research network focused on precision oncology, hoping to advance the outcomes of patients with cancer. I appreciate your support and tuning in, and this is going to be a treat to all of you especially if you are in clinical practice, because I have Dr. Ben Weinberg from Georgetown and MedStar to help us dissect the data that were presented at the ASCO GI annual meeting. This hybrid meeting that took place in San Francisco several weeks ago uh, had a lot of intriguing and interesting data that we are going to review, and Dr. Ben Weinberg is going to join me to tell us what are the top abstracts that he viewed had clinical implication and practical application in the way you take care of patients. Before I air the episode that I taped with Dr. Ben Weinberg, please don't forget to subscribe to the show, rate the show, refer a friend or a colleague to the show, and write a brief review. And without further ado, Dr. Ben Weinberg on the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. Ben, welcome to the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. appreciate you taking time of your busy schedule to to join us. For the folks who are listening, maybe a little bit about you and what you do, where you work, and, and what got you interested in GI oncology?
1: Well, thanks so much for having me. I actually got dressed up for this, even though it's mostly on audio. So You're always dressed up. You're always dressed up. Yeah. (laughs) You know, in these virtual times, there's not a whole lot of reason to get dressed up these days. So, you know. Um, So, yeah, you know, I'm I'm a GI medical oncologist at Georgetown. I've been here since uh, I graduated medical school. And, uh, you know, under the mentorship of John Marshall and several of his disciples, you know, I got steered towards GI oncology and sort of never looked back. And I Mostly, um, I'm interested in finding new drugs for patients with colorectal and pancreatic cancer and, and doing some early phase uh, clinical trials to try to move those into the clinic. Well,
0: it's great to have you. And, uh, and uh, did you read John's uh,
1: book? I actually read his book and I reviewed it, so he owes me. I did. I even hosted a, uh, a virtual book club for, for him and his wife as well. That was a few months ago. The things we do for this Marshall guy, I'm telling you. <laughs> It's a good book. I encourage anybody who hasn't
0: read it to, to pick it up. It, it's- it is. It is indeed. So so Ben, I reached out to you to have you on the show to talk a little bit about what is in ASCO GI. Obviously, I recognize there was so many abstracts, a lot of data and, uh, and a lot of presentations. So we can't cover them all, but I'm certain that there are maybe five or six that really intrigued you where you feel they may have some clinical application in your practice and in the practice of physicians who are listening to this show so hit us with number one not in the order of importance don't worry so let's (laughs) go with the first one
1: yeah so i I do have a bunch and and i would say you know aligning what you were just saying historically we leave asco gi and we're kind of like oh that was a bit of a snooze nothing sort of big took place they saved the big abstracts for asco or esmo but this year was different. There were actually some really good high-level positive results that we can actually bring to the clinic. And I think the biggest one and the one we were kind of all waiting for since it was sort of announced by press release, which is, you know, how we practice medicine these days, uh, was the Topaz study, which tried to add um immunotherapy to frontline chemo with gemcitabine cisplatin for advanced biliary tract cancers. And For those who don't treat a lot of biliary tract cancers, there basically hasn't been a new drug in the last literally 12 years. So it was the 2010 New England Journal paper that showed that gemcitabine cisplatin was better than gemcitabine. Since then, we haven't really made great strides in that regard. And and this was a study that did show a overall survival benefit of adding uh, immune therapy to frontline chemo. Uh, for this you know, patient population that notoriously is, is very hard to treat, refractory to chemotherapy. The results were not massive. So the, the median overall survival was 12.8 versus 11.5 months. Uh, but there was a big tail. And, and we're seeing this more in these immunotherapy studies where, yeah, the median overall survival might not be too different. The progression-free survival was longer, but not huge, you know, less than two months difference. But 24-month overall survival Basically, twenty-five versus ten percent. So clearly, there's fifteen percent of folks who are alive two years out because they got the immune therapy versus those that didn't, uh, and that is a, a pretty significant tail for a population. Again, that historically we don't have that many drugs that work in this space. So that was a big thing that we were kind of waiting to see. And then the other big question is: ha- so who is this tail? How do we pick them out? Who's what? Predictive biomarkers do we have to show who's going to respond and I would say, you know, we really don't know. I mean, they looked at this a few different ways and we can get all into the weeds of how to calculate PD-L1 expression and do you count on the tumor or the adjacent immune cells and what stain, et cetera. But there definitely does seem to be if there's more immune expression, that's better, but there there seem to be benefit a, a little bit across the board. So I think that is a big change and I think this is going to get approved soon. I was going to actually
0: ask you, you got the question, you stole the question from me about the staining. Does it Does it really... What, so you think 1% and above will
1: be okay? Well, I, I think in reality, it'll probably wind up getting approved for all comers. Um, I'm, you know, have, I'm sort of in the minority on this. And, you know, there's this was actually debated at ASCO-GI in the upper GI space with nivolumab. Do we need pd one expression? Or do we even need to know the pd one expression before we give someone with frontline upper GI adenocarcinoma immune therapy in addition to chemotherapy? And personally, and in, in, you know, my work with Karis has showed me, you know, sometimes I'll send tissue locally and get one PDL1 score, and send the same tissue to Karis and get a different PDL1 score, and that range can be pretty big sometimes. And then if you start talking about different biopsies, primary versus metastasis, different stains, different um, thresholds, it, it's it's very muddy. Um, and I would hate to deny a patient a potential benefit, and again, that benefit's going to be in the tail. Probably not as much upfront, um, just because one test pointed one way or another. I mean, my my thinking may change on that as we're getting more data out. And there was a nice study looking at Kaplan-Meyer subtractions to try to analyze the PD1 one to four group for upper GI. But I would say it's it's still pretty murky. And I know pathologists, there's not that many that are going to call a PD1 score four or three, right? It's either going to be zero one five or or ten in my experience. So. You know, extrapolating that to biliary, I think it's even murkier, right? We really don't have a good biomarker to predict who's going to respond outside of maybe the MSI high group.
0: And I know biliary is is a, is a very tough disease to treat. Obviously, nobody is going to undermine that, but it's hard not to look at the 12.8 months and the 11.5 months median survival and not to say the difference is really four or five weeks. Um, so at the first glance. Um, when you discuss this with the patient and you say the difference is five weeks, they may really shrug their shoulder and say, I, this is really not enough, but you commented on the tail of the curve. So can you help us reconcile this? I mean, I'm not a GI oncologist. So I'll look at this and say, okay, it's great. Congrats. But it's one
1: month. So I don't know what you're going crazy about. Right. You know, and that's, I think why we're all waiting to see, you know, more of the data and hopefully when it's published, we get even more Uh, but with some of these immunotherapy studies, you don't see a huge uh, difference, especially in PFS. So the PFS was 7.2 versus 5.7 months. It's it's like, so why are we getting so excited about a PFS difference that's less than two months? Well, you know, with these, you really have to look at the hazard ratio and then the landmark survival. So I think landmark survival, who was alive one year, two years out, is with these immunotherapy studies is in some ways much more important um, because people aren't a median, right? They're, They're an individual that that you know uh, they're not necessarily following the whole group, right? So, um, and the response rate was higher. It was like twenty six point seven versus eighteen point seven percent with the addition of dravolimab. So that can be important more on the front end if you're looking for response, for example. Um, and I think the big takeaway and what we're all waiting for is really the GEMSYS uh, nab paclitaxel data out of that phase three study. And I think that's hopefully also going to be positive. And, and then we, you know, start putting these together and now you're actually moving the needle much further. Um, again, why am I so excited again? Because we haven't had anything in a dozen years, right? right? Um, so that 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 is definitely a big component of this. All right. That's Topaz. Next. Okay. So with Topaz, we also have to talk about Himalaya. I'm I'm not, this is not just an AstraZeneca podcast, I promise, but, um, but this (laughs) was, I like
0: the, I I like the mnemonics though. I like Himalaya and Topaz.
1: You know, we finally have followed, you know, the cardiologist. We actually have good names for most of these trials. And actually the ones I'm choosing all pretty much have good names. So that gives you some idea. So, um, you know, I, I will not posit myself as, as necessarily the HCC specialist, but. Same thing. For many years, we had serafinib, and that was it, right? And um, that was the control arm. And if nothing else, as they said, as Dr. Abloff said at the end of the, I think, his talk, serafinib is no longer a valid control arm for these types of studies. And if nothing else, that is a significant improvement. So uh, bevacizumab, atizolizumab is sort of the standard that was not used in this study, but this is looking at the immune combo of PD-1, CTLA-4 with tremolumab, dervalumab, um, compared to serafinib. And also there was uh, another arm with durvalumab alone. Durvalumab versus serafinib, not too different, but durvalumab seemed to be better tolerated uh, for what it's worth. And and same thing, you know, the median overall survival of the TREMI with this one uh, 300 uh, with durvalumab was um, 16.4 versus 13.8 months. So it was a couple months bigger uh, with a hazard ratio of 0.76. And they've started doing these not just landmark, but looking at the hazard ratio at certain time points, which I don't know if you're really allowed to do, but they looked at the hazard ratio after nine months and it was 0.7 for survival, which is pretty good. And again, looking at the three year landmark overall survival is 30.7 versus 20.2%. So again, with the, you know, compared to serafinib, which nobody likes um, there, you know, there were 10%, you know, alive at three years that got the uh, higher that got the, the immune combo and again, putting this into context, I think we're going to see nivolumab epilimumab readout. We're going to, you know, BEV for those who can get it if there's no contraindication from bleeding issues. I think it would still be the standard, but this is another good option to have out there for these patients. So
0: you could do bev, atezo, trimumab, and durva, and then you
1: saying there's also a nevo epi that is, uh, has not read yet? Yeah, that's coming down the, the, the pipe. Um, so... Again, for, for a, a group that historically had one option, you know, over the last several years, there's been this panoply of new drugs, which is really a boon for the folks who treat, um, hepatocellular cancer because it, it, it again, it was very hard to treat for the longest time. So, and again, you know, now there's different options for different subsets of patients, those who have contraindications to VEGF inhibition. Um, you know, um, who have varices and things like that. So that there's more options available. And, and this also showed, you know, dervalimab even by itself has activity. So, um, it, you know, that that is another potential option for folks. So it'll be interesting to see what happens on the regulatory side with that, uh, with those types of drugs.
0: That's great. And this is just uh, from my earlier days in academia. I, re- I recall that uh, liver-directed therapy sometimes would be given to patients with even metastatic hepatocellular carcinoma. I presume these were patients that were not eligible for liver-directed therapy?
1: Right. So these were all folks with advanced disease. Um, not, and there were some other studies that I, I won't get into that were looking at um, doing similar accommodations with um, Y90 liver- directed therapy and things like that. So th- there's a lot that that's cooking on that front, which is good. Ben,
0: I don't know if you can beat this. You've got Topaz and Himalaya. I don't know what other name you're going to come up with. Let's
1: see. (laughs) I got a couple. So, um, uh, there's, there's a couple good ones to choose from. Okay. So one, uh, respect. Okay. Which is good that this is a Japanese study, JCOG 1018, which doesn't have the same kind of ring to it, but, uh, this was a study everybody was kind of excited about because, um, you know, as GI oncologists, we hate giving oxaloplatin. You know, it's a standard drug; it has activity, but it's, you know, it causes a lot of side effects, and invariably, the benefit it offers is the minority of whatever overall benefit you're giving patients. So, so the Japanese group um, was basically treating folks with um, uh, previously untreated metastatic colorectal cancer with. Fluoroprimidine and devicesomat, and then they randomized folks to receive oxaloplanin or no oxaloplatin. And you had to be at least age 70 with an ECOG performance test of two, or 75 or above with an ECOG performance status of zero to two. And they basically showed there was really no difference between whether folks got ox or not. Ox was definitely more toxic, caused over half of folks to have grade two or higher neuropathy. Um, with no overall survival benefit and actually the median overall survival was higher for those who did not get oxaloplatin. I would to to play devil's advocate because I do sometimes give this group oxaloplatin for various reasons. Um, there was a higher response rate in the oxaloplatin group. It was almost 50% compared to just uh, under 30%. And the PFS was about the same. So while I agree kind of with sort of the, global take that all comers, there's no benefit from oxaloclidin. We should be giving these people single agent floor permitting with bevacizumab. I would say for select pe- folks, especially the fitter um, elderly folks, because again, age is just a number, but performance status is performance status. If someone's symptomatic from their tumor and they need a response, I would still consider giving those folks oxaloclidin. And, and I tend to give it not for very long periods of time and pull it off, you know, at the earliest signs of any potential neuropathy. So I think I actually got a little bit of everything out of that the results of that study, but I think the global takeaway is for, for all comers, there really doesn't seem to be much oxalapine benefit as you get into these age groups, which which we've known pretty much for some time. So Ben,
0: uh, I, I may be asking uh, some silly questions or stupid questions, but that's okay. My listeners know I'm allowed to do that because I'm the host. <laughs> um, so just to understand, so these are metastatic CRC, mm-hmm and what what the abstract proposed is that if you're over if you're older you can just get by with flupermidine and bevacizumab and you don't need oxali correct i guess my question is and you said you know for somebody who has a lot of tumor burden you probably will still do a little bit of oxali and then and then push back so so this is without looking at additional aspects of the two questions Did they look at additional aspects of the tumor on the molecular level just to understand if there's any heterogeneity, you know, whatever, like uh, the KRSs, whatever, other things that you guys look at? And number two, this study was mainly in Japan. Mm -hmm. Is there any reason to think that there's some elements in the Japanese patient population that may be different than the U.S. patient population that may not be really scalable to non-Japanese patients?
1: Uh, well, answering the second question first, I don't know. Um, I feel like the Japanese overall tend to be healthier than we are, um, and I don't know if that, you know, because oxaloplanin, as one gets older, you know, impaired renal function, already at higher risk for neuropathy, more, more comorbidities, you know, it's a setup for badness basically. Um, but to answer your first question, they did actually look at some uh, subgrouping, and the and the RAS wild type group actually did benefit from oxaloplanin. I think the RAS mutated group kind of does poorly either way. So why punish them by giving them oxalpine and it's not going to salvage a, a bad mutation. But that's another subgroup where again I, I would you know consider giving oxalpine because that group did seem to be do uh, did seem to do a little better than the RAS mutated group, just for example. That's excellent.
0: All right. We've got Topaz Himalaya Respect. Number four.
1: Okay, now I have to choose. <laughs> is... Oh, you can, you can do them all. Don't choose. Okay, I won't choose. Um, well, the, the one I really want to talk about is Galaxy. So I, I don't know how much this permeated the, uh, I know it permeated the Twitter space pretty widely, but uh, there's a lot to unpack in this study. Another Japanese study. So they basically followed over 1,500 patients who had resected colorectal cancer, stage one to stage four, and they collected ctDNA using the Signatera assay at various time points, post-op. And uh, they followed them, you know, in some almost a year now. So some of this is still early data, mostly looking at disease-free survival within the first year. But the results are, are really striking. So I'm just going to kind of rattle them off here. So all stages um, of the almost 1,000 patients they had results for, about 188 were ctDNA positive at the four-week post-op time point, which was their big time point to see whether someone had post-op CTDNA. So they think there's minimal residual disease there. This is a tumor-informed assay. So they did gene sequencing on the tumor. They draw their blood. It's a personalized blood test. CTDNA positive that there's some tumor that's shedding DNA somewhere. Whereas 852 were CTDNA negative. If you took all stages, the 12-month disease-free survival, if you were CTDNA negative at four weeks post-op, was almost 93%. And if you had CTDNA positive at four weeks post-op, it was 47.5%. Hazard ratio of almost 11, okay? So, that four-week post-op time point is clearly prognostic, okay, across all stages. Which we knew that. Like, we knew it's prognostic. Yeah, but so that's the first, you know, of many things here, okay? If you just look at stage two and three, it was similar. It was 95 versus 55%. The hazard ratio was like 13. Now, the other cool thing they looked at in a subset of folks was what they call um, the dynamic. So, if you looked at The data where they had a CTD day at four weeks post-op and 12 weeks post-op, and looking at their six-month disease-free survival, they don't quite have 12 months yet. If you were negative at both time points, your disease-free survival was 98% at six months. Okay, pretty good. If you went from negative to positive, that's bad. So that was only about 30-some patients, but their six-month disease-free survival was only about 63%. If you went from positive to negative, if you got clearance of your ctDNA, it was a hundred percent. Okay, six month disease free survival. And if you were positive, positive, very bad. So your disease free survival was fifty eight percent. And again, this was a median follow up of about eleven months, showing that if you can clear ctDNA, it will definitely improve at least your six month disease free survival. Again, we don't have longer follow up. We don't have overall survival data. Um, but that was very. Um, that was the second point. The third point, uh, third and fourth points are what does chemo do to this? So they saw that if you um, gave adjuvant chemotherapy in the the CT DNA positive groups, um, there was benefits uh, across um, all, you know, stage, high risk stage two, stage three, stage four. And I think the biggest point, which is what I'm always looking to see, because I believe we're probably over treating the vast majority of these folks, especially stage two, is that the 12-month disease-free survival for high-risk stage 2 can- the patients with resected colorectal cancer and stage 3, if you were ctDNA negative, okay, at that four-week post-op, 12-month d- disease-free survival. With chemo, 96%. Without chemo, 94%, okay? There was no difference in whether you had disease recurrence in the first year if you were ctDNA negative. And again, this is, you know, over 500 patients and they weren't randomized, right? So we don't know if the people who didn't get chemo were sicker or had other reasons why they didn't, weren't offered or received adjuvant chemotherapy. So it's not, a, not randomized, right? But it shows that we're probably over-treating, at least in terms of the 12-month the, the disease-free survival metric, um, a lot of people with chemo because everybody was stage three and about 80% on this study got uh, adjuvant chemo. And there were were fewer high-risk stage 2 patients who got chemo, but uh, it sort of supports and sort of confirmation bias what I believe is that, you know, the vast majority of folks with stage 2 colorectal cancer have no benefit from adjuvant chemo, even the historically high risk. And my hope is that ctDNA and other things like immunoscore will help tease out the folks who who are are at higher risk. And they actually saw even a stage 1 patient who had positive ctDNA who did recur, right? So, Clearly, it's a powerful technology. We're still learning how to use it. But this emerging data is very exciting that, you know, we might be able to spare a lot of people chemo and, and better tailor, you know, who really should get chemo and, and potentially for how long and what type of chemo, et cetera. Yeah,
0: no, this is this is really amazing. And as you know, at Keres, we're working on the liquid biopsy, which would really be uh, available, hopefully, in 2022, which uh, which really uh, this is very intriguing. Can I ask a quick question about this? For the ones that have, were positive that became negative, the ones with the hundred percent disease-free survival, what type of chemo did they get? Do you know? Like, were they all homogeneous, or do you? Th- I know it's like now we're. Now we're splitting hairs because it's a very small sample, but I presume they all got chemo, right? They all were positive. They all got chemo. They became negative and they had a hundred percent disease-free survival. It's not like they were positive. They spontaneously became negative because the, no, right?
1: Uh, yeah, that's a little hard to tease out the exact answer to your question based on what they presented, I believe. Um, but uh, because they had sort of different cohorts they were looking yeah. at for both, but uh, the folks who got chemo, um, you know, the vast majority of them, eighty percent had a doublet, um, yeah. so fluoropriming with and Only about twelve to fifteen percent had just fluoropriming monotherapy. But I- I'm not sure because there were um, only sixty-two patients who went positive. Yeah, to yeah they're, they're very
0: small, but it's it's very intriguing, right? This is yeah.
1: very interesting. Galaxy. Okay, next. Okay, so now I got some kind of quicker hitters. So Tony saw presented the adagrasum, I can never say that right, for the pancreas KRES G12C mutated folks. This was a small study, 12 PDAC patients, 18 other GIs, most of which were biliary. Um, So this is an oral, you know, KRES G12C inhibitor. Again, patient populations that typically don't respond well to chemotherapy and limited treatment options. But, you know, here they're seeing response rates, again, small cohorts in like 50%, both for pancreas and biliary, with durations of response on median around seven months. So very impressive um, for a pill. Again, in a treatment, you know, and you know, we don't really see these types of response rates or durations of responses, even with chemotherapy. So the, the that goes- was exciting. It, for some reason, it doesn't seem to work as well in colorectal cancer, at least as monotherapy, it seems to work better in lung cancer. So I honestly was surprised because I'm like, okay, this, these drugs work in lung. They don't seem to work as well in colon, at least by themselves. There, there's no chance they're really going to work in pancreas, right? That's so much harder. But this actually kind of belies that and, and shows that, It actually can can have an effect. So that that was pretty impressive. And obviously, we need to see more data, but uh, very. That's that's the crystal one, right? I believe so. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'm missing. Yeah, I don't have all my acronyms.
0: (laughs) Well, you know, you've got. I mean, between topaz, Himalaya, respect, and galaxy. That's (laughs) okay. That's a good. That's a
1: great one. Okay. What else? Another one is Tribeca. You know, if you like Tribeca, New York. So. Tribeca uh, uses this drug called Araspase, which is basically an asparaginase that's encapsulated inside a red blood cell molecule, or a red blood cell, I should say. And um, it, it's a way of delivering you know, the Araspase more effectively to the tumor and not causing as much of the systemic uh, side effects. And um, I'm very interested in, in this drug. My colleague, Marcus Noel at Georgetown, has a trial, a phase one trial of using Fulfirinox with, with Araspase for frontline metastatic. Um, or locally advanced pancreatic ductal adenocarcinoma. This was the phase three second line trial. I like how this trial is designed. Patients got chemo depending on what they got in the frontline setting. So those who had GEM in the frontline setting got um, 5-FU or Renatecan or an Aliri kind of regimen. Um, Those who got 5-FU in the frontline setting got gem cyto b and then they were randomized to receive a space or not. And unfortunately, it was really a negative study. That again, this these folks don't do particularly well in the second line, you know, metastatic pancreatic setting. Median overall survival was you know seven point five versus six point seven month. PFS the same. Disease control rate pretty much the same. But if you looked at the subgroup that got can, so these are folks who got gemcitabine, you know, based treatment frontline and now are getting sort of second-line arenatecan-based treatment, there was a a slightly bigger uh, divide, eight versus 5.7 months, with a hazard ratio of 0.81, although the progression-free survival was also very similar. So putting all together, unfortunately, negative study. I know that the the ArrayTech, I'm not sure how you say that, it's a French company, their stock really took a nosedive after these, these data were press released a few months ago. You know, we are still optimistic because we're giving the drug with 5-FU and can. and if there's one group that's going to benefit, it's that group, right? So ours is a phase one, but, uh, you know, and that was also presented in poster at this meeting, but uh, um, it, it, it's sort of interesting data that I think we, I don't I don't think we've still seen the end of that drug, hopefully. Anything else, Ben? Yeah. So um there's a lot of excitement around um uh, PD1 for the MSI high locally advanced rectal cancer patients. Uh the Memorial Sloan Kettering group presented a very interesting study where they've treated 11 patients so far with 6 months of dostarlimab and all 11 had a clinical complete response. They didn't get chemo radiation, they didn't get surgery. They're just being monitored, which is very exciting. I'm a little, you know, I'm always trying to poke holes in these that they've, they say they've enrolled 16 patients. So it's unclear what happened to the other five patients so far. I think we're still, some probably haven't even started treatment yet, but very promising and shows that this subgroup, you know, these locally advanced MSI high rectal cancer patients, we know they don't benefit from uh, neoadjuvant chemotherapy. They, they seem to benefit from radiation, but they, this shows they may not even need that. You know, it's a hard group to study because it's rarer, but you know, that's very impressive data. The last uh, plug I'll make is for the um, Beacon plus Nevo. So this is uh, the BRAF B600E mutated metastatic colorectal cancer second line. The current standard out of the Beacon study is Oncorafenib Cetuximab here. They also added Novolumab, 50% response rate, much higher than seen with just uh, Oncorafenib Cetuximab, and a median overall survival of 15 months. Very impressive Interested to see how this is going to play out in bigger studies. Um, There's going to be a study of chemo plus um, beacon regimen in the frontline setting versus beacon versus chemo. So there's a lot that's going on in the BRAF space, even though it's only about 10% of folks with metastatic colorectal cancer. But very exciting data that adding IO actually plays an impact in this group. Because, again, this is a patient population, especially pre-beacon, that really does not respond well to chemotherapy. This is really wonderful.
0: Wonderful recap. And I really appreciate that. This is, this is going to be great. I'm pretty sure many of our listeners appreciate your thoughtful commentary on practical updates for ASCO GI. Really, thank you so much for doing this. Thanks. It was my pleasure. everyone for joining. I appreciate your support. Thank you for tuning in to the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show and I hope you refer your friends and colleagues to the show. As always, let me know how I'm doing by messaging me on Twitter at Shadi Nabhan or by emailing me at cnabhan at kerasls.com. Thank you and until next time, take care.